so let me get started with the historical setting, the historical setting. And we, we covered quite a bit of chapter 36 last time, and so we're going to review 36 a little bit. There's so much there, and I, and I don't want to rush past it, especially since we finally got into an interesting narrative portion of, this, of, the, of the gigantic book. And so I want to, you know, you know, get everything we can out of it. So the historical setting, though, is very important. The only thing remaining in all of Israel is Jerusalem. Um, it's hard to believe, but the Assyrian armies under their leader, their king Sennacherib, have completely dominated and sent off into slavery and exile every city except Jerusalem in um, Judah. Of course, Jerusalem being the capital of Judah, the place where God's uh, name is and where his heart is, where the temple is, where his, it's his capital city, it's his throne, and it's where his Davidic king is Hezekiah, and, and the Assyrians are set on taking Jerusalem next. And so if you'll remember, and hopefully y'all remember it a little bit from last week, uh, Sennacherib sends his general. Anyone remember the name of the general or the title? It's not easy to remember, but the Rabshaka. He sends the Rabshaka to Jerusalem to uh, offer um, you know, terms of surrender. And he basically tells them, you surrender, I will be good to you, I will care for you, I won't kill anyone, I will let you have your uh, wine and your oil, and you'll have uh, you know, a good evening, and, and spend, uh, spend a lot of good time until I ship you off into a, another land, which was the Assyrians' um, protocol. You know, that completely you know, disintegrates a culture and a way of life. And so he's already done that to all of the tribes except... Uh, Judah and a small tribe of Benjamin in the south. And he's now coming around the city of Jerusalem. And so you have to understand, if he is victorious, you know, what will be the consequences? If he destroys Jerusalem, kills Hezekiah, and sends the people off into exile, what would be the consequences? No Davidic line, therefore no Jesus, therefore no prophecies being fulfilled, therefore everyone goes to hell. So this is literal, this is a battle between the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of heaven. And the Rabshaka is essentially an agent of the devil. And Hezekiah is, he is a type of Christ and he is an agent of the Lord. And so that is the, the historical setting. And um, Rabshaka came to the envoys and he says, we've beaten every God. We're going to beat your God. Um, you can't trust him. Don't listen to Hezekiah. And, uh, but the people refused to answer him as Hezekiah ordered. So let's start in verse 22. Verse 22. Let me make sure I'm in the right place. It says, uh, then Eliakim. Am I in the right place? All right, verse 22. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rabshakeh. Right? So these envoys, they are terrified. They are in mourning. They're expecting to have their heads on a stake by the next morning. Um, they're filled with terror and sorrow. And Hezekiah has a big decision to make. Will he listen to the word of Isaiah, do the right thing, stay strong? Or will he tuck tail and run, surrender, and have the Davidic line and all the people of God disintegrated and, and assimilated into the world, never to be seen of again? 
right? That's the big decision Hezekiah has to make. Now, y'all know why uh, Israelites are called Jews today, right? Y'all know why? Because the only tribe that was remaining was Judah. So that's why they're called Jews. Um, the other tribes, Dan and Naphtali and you know, Asher, those are all, no one knows where they went. They're the lost tribes of Israel. They were completely, um, you, know, s- you know, sent off into exile. The Mormons believe that they actually came to America and they were the Indians, but that's obviously not true. Um, <coughs> all right. Um, so the typology here, and, you know, we, we're, we're trying to learn typology, trying to learn how to read the Old Testament, how to understand it. So when we read of... Um, you know, the Davidic king, Hezekiah, in Jerusalem, surrounded by the forces of the Assyrians, and the word of God saying, stand strong, I will deliver you. Um, typologically, what we, what, how do we apply that to ourselves? Anyone? What is Jerusalem? It's the people of God, right? All right, and who is Hezekiah? Christ, that's right, and... The Assyrians are the forces of darkness and Satan and all of his minions and all the people that serve his will. Make sense? So that's typologically how to understand it. Um, And the lesson I think that we should really focus on here is, um, well, to ask a question, what happened to the northern tribes? Um, They're gone. But if, if the Assyrians are the forces of darkness and evil and Jerusalem is the people of God and Hezekiah is Jesus, um, what are what is what are the ten northern tribes that have already been? Um, they're the apostate church. That's exactly right. They're the apostate church. And um, if you remember back in Isaiah seven, which we're going to be covering Sunday, in Isaiah seven, the northern tribes team up with another regional superpower named Syria, not to be confused with Assyria. And Syria and the ten northern tribes. Do y'all remember what happened? They attacked. The southern tribe, they attacked Judah with the sole purpose of getting rid of the king, the Davidic king, whose name was Ahaz. That's Hezekiah's dad. So we have in chapter 7, we have the apostate church and the world attacking Jesus and the people of God in order to remove the seed. You remember Satan is always attempting to destroy the seed throughout the entire Old Testament and all the way into the Christmas story with Herod. And so by the time we get to chapter 36, the apostate church has been fully purged and fully assimilated and completely judged by God. But if you think about that in our situation today, who, who, who is the church's greatest enemy in our world today? Like if America continues down this particular path, who, who is going to come for Christians who's already coming for like uh, one of the writers for the Babylon Bee was recently um, accosted and and arrested in a um, in an airport and charged with a misdemeanor right you know body scanned body searched seven FBI agents all around him you know the biggest threat is the federal government right Um, it's it's um, the federal government has clearly been demonized Um, but if if there is a second threat who is it? It's all the Christians that will turn your butts in. That's what it is. It's all the Christians that will turn you in. It's the, it's the apostate church. It is uh, what we call squishes. You know, squishes aren't necessarily apostates, but they're on the way. And they're running interference right, for the rainbow jihad. 
Right? So you, you really do have the same forces today. You have the federal government, the state, the power of the state, with their prophets and their priestesses, the rainbow jihad, right? And then you have the apostate church, the liberal church, the squish church, that's basically saying, you know, uh, they have a different approach as to how to go about this. And very often, they will, the apostate church will be the ones writing the articles in the New York Times bashing actual Christians. It's happening, this is happening in our world still to this day. In China, for example, where Christians are being uh, persecuted in, in large numbers, um, you know who does a large amount of the persecuting? Well, it's the state, it's the communist government, but it's also the licensed church. The licensed church, along with the state, persecutes the bride of Christ. Now, who can give me the imagery from the book of Revelation? You know, the harlot and the beast that will persecute the church. That's right. And in, in the times of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, that is apostate Israel, apostate Jerusalem that crucified Jesus along with the Roman Empire, persecuting the actual church. So you have this. This is something that's always been true. You have the false church and the pagans fighting the true church. So it makes the battle, the culture wars that we're talking about these days, very complicated. Right. I really want y'all to understand this, okay? If, if we were fighting just pagans, it wouldn't be as complicated as if we're fighting ex-Christians, apostates, and pagans. You understand what I'm saying? That's why the wars are always culture wars. They're always theological wars. They're always wars with Bible words involved. You know, you know, for, for example, um, in, in this fight, we're fighting over the dictionary, okay? Well, what word is on the table? What word are we fighting over? We're fighting over love. Well, what does the Bible say is love? Patient. Kind, patient, one man, one woman. Well, what does the world say is love? <laughs> whatever your heart feels, whatever the God of your heart says. You're your own law, right? Which by what they mean is perverted, twisted, orc-like sex, right? Sodomy. And so, but then it's not just the, the world saying sodomy is love, but also the apostate church is saying sodomy is love. You know, there's churches all over this town with rainbow, rainbow things, right? But then, not only, not only do you have that, you have true churches saying no love is one man, one woman for life. Now, and then both of them are coming at you. Now, but, but think of this, if we weren't an apostate nation, if we weren't like Israel, if we were just a small group of Christians in a pagan nation, we wouldn't be fighting over the word love. You understand? Why are we fighting over the word love? Because everyone was a Christian. It, because our nation was Christian. You think that um, the Vikings, when they invaded England, were having arguments about what is the true definition of love? No, they're like, no, our love is love. You know, you would let them love whoever they want to love. No, that wasn't that kind of a war. It was pagans trying to burn down your house and steal all your stuff. You know, shoot them, they die, right? It, and there is always religious wars, but there's religious wars between pagans and Christians is different than a religious war between apostates and Christians. It makes it much more complicated. So we're talking about in our, in our country, we're talking about um, wokeness. You've heard of wokeness. 
Now, everyone, I don't know if you know what wokeness is, but wokeness is essentially the modern version of Marxism. It's a form of cultural Marxism, and it redefines words like justice, right? In the Bible, what is justice? Um, well, maybe. Righteousness. It's basically justice is defined by God's law, which is just. But for them, what is justice? Well, it, it depends on which class you're in. Are you in an oppressed class or an oppressor class? And where are you on the scale of intersectionality? You know, if you're a homosexual, you get a point. If you are a minority, you get a point. And based on your s spot in the intersectionality chart, um, you are imputed righteousness. Or if you are a white oppressor, you are imputed unrighteousness. But we are all talking about who's righteous. Imagine the Vikings with the the helmets coming in to slaughter the maidens they're not they're not they don't have self-righteousness they just have a bloodlust you understand the difference but when you see some woke scold on the internet with big giant glasses and and blue hair what is what is she fussing at people for you're hateful you're not loving that's unjust you know that's that's not equality you know, we need to do what's right. We need to get the government to enforce justice. You see what they're, they've got Jesus' words in their head. But they have an orc version of them. They have a, a twisted, uh, a tortured version of them. You understand what I mean? Like, it's, they have beautiful classical music in their head, but all it is is twisted screamo. Ah, but it's still, there's still something in there that's beautiful but broken. It's because we're apostates. We're not pagans. And that's why when, when you are, when we're fighting this culture war in, in America, it's not like a war with the Vikings. It's a war with the nor 10 northern tribes. That's what it is. And you want to make sure that in this war, you don't end up on the wrong side. Running interference for the bad guys. Okay? When David showed up on the battle to fight Goliath, to take off the head of the Satan statue, you know, just saying. When, uh, when David showed up on the field, what did all the cowardly squish, um, many of them apostate Israelites, begin to do? Well, they doubted him, yes, but they didn't just doubt him. They accused him. They said, what are you doing? Where's your father's sheep? Remember his brothers? They accused him. They rejected him. They imputed bad motives to him, right? They slandered him. And, and, I mean, I don't know this for sure, but you know there was people in the crowd saying, well, guys, you know, Goliath does have a point. Um, we, we should maybe, you know, have a struggle session and listen to him so that he can share his voice. I mean, he, doesn't Goliath need a seat at the table too? Aren't we a free country? You have, that's, why are we having these confusing fights? It's because we're dealing with... Um, an a, a apostate war, a culture war. And, uh, and the sides are not two, but three, the world, the apostate church, and the true church. And we're not surrounded yet. Like, it's not Jerusalem. It's not the Alamo yet. But I think it will be uh, if something doesn't change. You know, only God knows. And, uh, and of course, Lafayette's not the Alamo. But, um, but all over this world, um, and especially in America, it's, tensions are going to get hotter and hotter and hotter for Christians because God is disciplining his church. And di what does discipline do? Well, it does hurt for a while, but it also exposes who is false. 
It purges. Discipline purges. You turn up the heat and out goes the dross. Divisions must come in order that you might know who is genuine, right? Is Hezekiah going to fold like a lawn chair like all the 10 northern tribes? Is he going to trust in politics or political solutions or, or you know, Egypt? Is he going to trust in Syria? Is he going to, uh, or is he going to follow God's law and do what Isaiah says to do? Isaiah has been the one saying, of course, Isaiah is God. It's God's mouthpiece. Isaiah said, do not ally, don't vote for Egypt. Not going to save you, all right? Going to betray you. Don't surrender to Assyria. Will Hezekiah trust the word of God or will he fold like all the other apostate Christians and, uh, and then the battle be lost? So anyway, I wanted you to understand the historical sec- you know, setting, but also the theological setting for this battle. Any questions? You all understand all that? Good. You, you want to be like men of Issachar. What were the men of Issachar known for? They had the ability to understand the times that they lived in. And what did Jesus rebuke the people of his day for? He said, you can navigate the world through the stars and you can discern from the, the clouds and the wind what the weather's going to be like tomorrow, but you don't know the times. You can't even recognize what's going on around you. You lack discernment. And we don't want to be those sorts of blind people. Amen? All right, good. I have a... a a uh, guy from Chicago who's originally from Lafayette named Scotty. He's coming here tonight. And uh, just so everybody knows, when, if he does walk in here, you know, nothing bad's about to happen. He's a, he's a good guy. And uh, he, wants to, uh, he wants to do a college ministry and maybe teach. And so he, he called me on the phone to ask me what's life like in Lafayette, you know, in Christian ministry. His family's all from Lafayette. But it was kind of cool. His name's Scotty. I don't know if you should say it that way, though. Uh, so he might walk in, but I need you all to be nice to him and chat and don't leave that to me because I don't do well with strangers. All right. Isaiah 36. You got to know your strengths, right? All right. Isaiah 36. And um, mm, I don't know what verse this is. All right. Yeah, that particular part. Let's just go to Isaiah 36, verse something. It says, in the 14th year, no, it's verse 1. In the f- I had a problem with the printer this evening. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. See, that's what we're talking about. And the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, sent the Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. You know, why do we need to know that their meeting took place where women washed their laundry? Like, why would he say that? Um, It's because that was mentioned earlier uh, when um, other emissaries came and visited Hezekiah's dad, Ahaz. They met in that same exact spot, and Ahaz compromised. He wouldn't believe the sign. Remember what God said, ask for a sign. I'll save you. I promise I'll save you. You don't believe me? Ask for a sign. And he's like, no, I couldn't. I couldn't. He didn't want to believe. He didn't want to believe. Um, and, and he compromised. So he brings it up again. Isaiah brings it up again to show now Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, now he has a decision to make. Will he apostatize? Will he, will he uh, fall away or will he stay strong? Um, <clears throat> so uh, 
a few more lessons. I told you we got to nurse this for all it's worth here. I don't want to move on too quick. But this is a very important lesson. Just because we are faithful uh, doesn't mean we won't face trials. Amen? Um, Hezekiah was completely and utterly dedicated to the Lord, a faithful king, dedicated to the reconstruction. Hey, Scotty, come on in. Dedicated to the uh, reconstruction of Judah, but he still had to face trials, right? You know, there, there are people who believe, and I, I believe, of course, that the future is bright. You've heard me say that before. I have a positive eschatology. Um, but that does not mean that um, uh, we float to heaven on a bed of roses and that the kingdom advances just one soft target after the next. If the kingdom of God is going to advance uh, and the enemies of God are going to be pushed back, we will have to shed blood. Hezekiah was a faithful man, and uh, we're in uh, Isaiah 36. But Hezekiah was a faithful man. He was a, a godly man. He didn't trust in Egypt. He didn't make alliances with Syria. He didn't surrender to Assyria. Um, but he's, gotta, he's still got to go through this hardship. And does anyone know the term for... <coughs> the theological belief, it's a false belief or a, it's a false ism that says the future is bright and there's not going to be a lot of hardships. All we do is win, win, win. I'm sorry? Well, I suppose that's true of them as well. The prosperity gospel is, believers of this, it, triumphalism. Yeah, that's what triumphalism is. Triumphalism is, it says the future is bright. I believe that. I have a positive eschatology. I believe Jesus is on the throne and he's not going to uh, need a mulligan. This is going to, he's got it. Um, however, Jerusalem will still be surrounded occasionally by the Assyrians. There still will be blood that needs to be shed. People will have to fight. People will have to die. People will have to do hard things. Martyrs will have to go to their grave. So I think if, if we're just rational, if we're just rationalists, and we're like, well, what makes sense? Hmm, what makes sense? Everything's going to be great, or everything's going to be terrible, right? Positive all the way up, negative all the way Those two make rational sense, I think. Um, but what I think the Bible reveals is Jesus wins regardless. You know, Jesus wins even when the forces of darkness are, have you surrounded and, the, uh, and, and, and you are put on trial. You still have to go through that stuff. Even in your own individual lives, uh, we tell you all the time, and I tell you all the time, all things work together for good. That doesn't mean that all things are good. <laughs> you see, understand what I mean? All things are good is triumphalism. All things work together for good is sovereignty, is God's sovereignty and gracious providence. Understand the difference? All right, so that's our first lesson here. Uh, well, one of our many lessons. The, the second lesson, look at verse 6. Look what Rabshakeh says to, to Hezekiah. Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. Now, I do believe that about um, politicians, uh, political maneuvering, uh, political personalities, policies, parties. If you lean on them, it's like leaning on a broken reed. You know, the, like a, a broken reed. It's not stiff so that when you lean on it, it just like gives you a splinter. It stabs your hand. You don't lean on man. If you trust in man, ultimately trust in man, individual man or collective man in the state, 
if you trust in party, right, whichever party you pick, um, you eventually will be betrayed. They, they, they will not save you. That's like trusting in Egypt when the Assyrians are on their way or making an alliance with Syria to fight off the ten northern tribes. That's a, that doesn't mean we don't necessarily pick the, like, if you have to choose between a very evil person and a slightly evil person, you know, I'm trying to go in a good direction here, so I'll pick the slightly evil person, you know. And some people say don't pick any evil whatsoever. And, you know, I, if that's what you do, I don't, I'm fine with that. Um, I kind of, I, in my personal opinion, I pick the, uh, the lesser of two evils because I think we're go- trying to go in the right direction, trying to go in a good direction. And that's, you know, this person will feed me to the lions. This person uh, will not, even though they're probably going to do some bad stuff. You know, but they won't feed me to the lions. So it gives me a, it gives me a fighting chance, right? You know, let's give some t- time for the world to turn around. Um, but what you don't do is put your trust in man. You know, you don't worship man. Uh, and that's, a, that's the situation that they're facing here, right? And, uh, and that's what he's saying. Don't trust in Egypt. But I wanna, what I want to show you real clearly here is that Rav Shaka is accusing Hezekiah of trusting in Egypt. That's not true. Hezekiah has trusted in Isaiah's word. He hasn't trusted in Egypt. So what is Rob Shaka doing? Yeah, he's a he's a slippery serpent. He's a liar. He's slandering Hezekiah, and he's doing so, if you remember the story, in the common tongue so that everybody can hear. You know, and as a as a preacher, I love it when I find out about lies that are spread about me. I'm sure you love it when you hear lies spread about you. Right. It's enjoyable. Right. <laughs> They're like, well, couldn't you have spoken in a different language or maybe kept that private? Did you have to speak in the common tongue and, so that everyone on the gates could hear this fake nonsense about me? But that's part of the battle, though, isn't it? That's part of the battle, twisting of, of uh, motives, twisting of words, listening to words uncharitably, reconstructing events to make it look some way, insinuating motives, jumping to conclusions, fallacies. Marley mentioned one. There's millions of fallacies. And all so everyone on the gates can hear. That's how the, the devil plays dirty, right? And, and we're not, the battles we have to fight in this life right now currently are usually battles of lies, battles of deceptions, battles of words, battles with the dictionary, right? Battles with the tongue. And so you have to make sure that you're not one of those people up on those walls of Jerusalem getting all filled with discouraged, discouragement and despair and suspicion because a Rob Shaka is down there spreading a bunch of lies. You understand what I mean? You, 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 gullibility is not a Christian virtue. Christian virtue is shrewdness. That's a Christian virtue. And so you have to be savvy people. We want everyone in our church to not be dupes, duffel puds. We want everyone in our church to be savvy. So that, when, so that you can't be easily manipulated by the slanders of fork-tongued Rob Shaka's. Make sense? All right. And then one last lesson before we jump back in the text. Um, the world and the apostate church, in this case, Assyria and the already disintegrated 10 northern tribes, they just don't get it. They don't get it. All right. And um, I think that's very important to realize. The world doesn't understand you. They don't get it. Now, I'm not saying they're not smart. I'm saying they don't have uh, spiritual eyes to see. The natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit, for they're spiritually discerned, so they don't have Holy Spirit discernment. They just don't get it. 
And I, you can see that in Rob Shaka's case. Look at verse 7. He's basically saying, don't trust in Yahweh. Why would you trust in Yahweh? If you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God. Is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed? You see how confused he is? Hezekiah has removed all the high altars. He's beheaded all the uh, disco devils, you know, all the Satans in all the in capitals. He's beheaded all of them. He's gotten rid of all the high places in the whole nation. And this Rob Shaka thinks that he is, that Hezekiah got rid of all of Yahweh's temples. See, so yeah, he's completely confused. He, he has a polytheistic mind. He doesn't even have the categories to understand how Hezekiah makes decisions. Which is why in another place, and we might read it, which is why he says, like, why would you not surrender? Like, what are you putting your trust in? He's looking around. Why would you not? We've destroyed every single city in this entire region. You're the only one left. We've trapped you like a bird in a cage. Why wouldn't you go along with this? You know, you ever felt like that as a Christian at the office or with your family and nobody gets it? Why would you do that? You try to explain it, but they still go back to pragmatism or whatnot. They don't understand principle. They don't understand justice. They don't understand doing the right thing. It's a hard place to be in. I hope you're in that place at least once or twice in your life, right? All right, Isaiah 37. Let's see what what Hezekiah does. Any questions? Are y'all following with me? Do we need to wrap this up? You know I can wrap it up early. <laughs> All right, well, we'll do it then. Isaiah 37.1. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself in sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. So he goes to the temple court, courtyard. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and the senior priest covered with sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. So why, why are they going to Isaiah? Because he's the prophet. That's right. Very good. Uh, what Isaiah speaks from the Lord is the word of the Lord, and it's written down for us. They said to Isaiah, this is the emissaries from Hezekiah. Thus says Hezekiah, this day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord, your God, will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. Now, remember what Isaiah's son's name was? Shir Japhat. Every sermon I hear on that text, every, every pastor stumbles over that word. Nobody can say it. Uh, but it means the remnant will remain. Um, Isaiah has a little son named Remnant. It's kind of a cool name, I think. Remnant. So Isaiah believes in the remnant. He knows, and he, and he is going to uh, pray to the Lord and, and tell Hezekiah what to do. That's basically what they're, what they're doing. But look, look real quickly at uh, verse 4. Look what Hezekiah says to Isaiah. He says, It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh. It may be. It may be. Do you, do you see what they, are, what they have? They're entertaining the possibility that God wants to have all of them killed. You know, is that cool? Is, uh, I mean, do they deserve to die? 
A lot of those people in Jerusalem compromised with Ahaz years earlier. They deserve to die. I mean, have you ever been in a spot where you are under attack, your accusers are coming at you, and, and they want to ruin you, and you're like, God, would you help me? Would you protect me? But in your mind, you're thinking, I know, I'm not saying I deserve it. I'm not saying I deserve it. You know, but maybe there's mercy. You know, they hate me, and they're, they're saying all kind of lies about me. They don't even really know what my actual problem is. You know what it is, and I know I deserve to die and go to hell. But maybe, just maybe, you would save me from them. I think that's the right way to do it. I think that's the right way to do it. You're, it's, it's, you're submitting. What are you submitting to? You're submitting to his sovereignty. That's all you're doing. You're recognizing you don't deserve anything. You're not trying to bribe him or put him in a corner. You're submitting to his sovereignty and say, hey, we have a financial crisis. And God, ugh, I know this is actually kind of my fault. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, I know that it was this that got me into this and this, and I know it's kind of my fault, but maybe you'll save me, right? Maybe you'll save me. Right? I know that I have to reap what I sow, but maybe I can sow tenfold and not a hundredfold from my mistakes, or maybe none at all. Have you all ever been there? I think that's okay. That's the way to do it. That's the way to do it. Um, it may be. And then I love what they say here. It says, it may be that the Lord your God, and I, I, like, I love this. He's like, Isaiah, it may be that the Lord your God will hear what that guy was saying, right? That's what he says. What the, he says, it may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rob Shaka. I think that's actually kind of funny. It's like, God, did you hear what he just said? I'm not saying we deserve to be saved. I'm just saying you're sovereign. Did you hear what he just said, though? It's kind of like, save us. Do it for your own name. Do it for your own name. He just talked bad about you. We didn't. He did. I, I feel like that's, that's the way it's done. He said that. Like he says, God, maybe you'll hear the words of the Rob Shaka. Because remember last chapter, Rob Shaka was talking major trash against God and comparing him to the to the demons and the idols of the other nations and he says whom his master let's just make sure everyone knows who this guy works for whom his master the king of Assyria has sent to mock you the living God as opposed to the dead non-existent gods and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard you heard those you know Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. Verse uh, 5. When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them. And so here's God's word to Hezekiah. Got a big decision to make. You know, everything's on the line. Say to your master, thus says the Lord, do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard. And God's like, oh, I heard him. I heard him. Don't you worry. Uh, with which the young men, and that um, could be and probably should be translated boys. Um, that's what many of the scholars say. It's the word for boys, which I think is interesting, right? Um, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the boys of the king of Syria have reviled me. Now, I, that's a good response to give from Isaiah. I heard the speech. Don't be afraid. That's nice, right? What's God going to do? <coughs> Everything is on the line. I mean, everyone's scared to death. They're about to be 
at best sold into slavery. Okay, at best. Um, and they hear from God, don't be afraid. I mean, when they turn on the TV, the news says it's over. You're done for. Every other city has been deported into slavery. All, the whole apostate church has been completely disintegrated. There's just Jerusalem and Hezekiah left. And they have hundreds of thousands of soldiers all around. Remember what Rob Shaka said the earlier chapter? He said, we could give you 2,000 horses if you had enough men to ride them. He said, and he said, you couldn't organize enough men to beat one captain from one of the you know, various branches of the bureaucracy, much less fight the Assyrian horde. And y'all know where Assyria came from, where they've come from, right? That's Nineveh. Remember the great and powerful Nineveh that Jonah had preached to many years earlier. Right? <clears throat> so God says this, verse 7. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land. Right? So God is going to put a spirit in him. Now, um, does that mean God sends a demon or God puts like a, a fear in him? You know, or both, yeah, yes, right? Um, but he gets a rumor in his head. And he, because of the rumor that's in his head, he makes a rash decision, a hasty decision, a decision based on fear, and, and, and goes back to, uh, to Nineveh, Sennacherib, the king does. And uh, no one's exactly sure what that rumor is, but some archaeological reports and some historic historians believe that he had heard a rumor that Egypt had just teamed up with uh, Ethiopia. And, and so if he had to get back to his capital city, uh, city because he was afraid that they were going to hit him on one side and Egypt and, and Hezekiah was going to hit him on another side. <coughs> so time is of the essence. He has to go back to uh, the capital city of Nineveh, right? And when he gets there, look what happens. And I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. And history tells us that his two sons, if I remember correctly, assassinated him when he got back home. Now, what happens to the army? They get the, what appears to be the bubonic plague. An angel goes through and kills like hundreds of thousands of them in the middle of the night. We're going to get to that next chapter. But, um, but uh, wait, what? I know, it's, it's a very cool story. But I, I want y'all, if you can, to, uh, when, you, when you're bored, uh, if you go on YouTube and you search uh, Nineveh, it's called Expedition, I shared it on my Facebook, Expedition Bible, um, Nineveh Revealed, or something like that. It's the archaeological remains of Nineveh. You know, they know where Nineveh is, and it's massive. You can see the, the walls of it. And um, in there, they've discovered the palace of Sennacherib. And it's very interesting that when you go into the palace through the main corridors of his palace, there on the wall is uh, in reliefs in the stone is the battle of Lachish. Remember that from last chapter? That was the second to last city he needed to destroy. And it shows the, uh, the, the siege ramps that they built. What they would do is they would basically form giant uh, assembly lines with all their men and bring rocks from the fields and throw them up against the walls of the city. Rocks, and you can go to Lachish today. They know where that's at. There's like rocks this big. They're still there. And they just pile them up. And then men would get up on the top and just keep piling rocks until they made a giant ramp up to the wall. And then all the hordes of the 
you know, people, and people lived in the walls and stuff, and so you just run up there, and you run on the walls and run all around, and that's how they defeated Lachish, and you can see in his palace this grand artistic rendering of his, you know, mighty accomplishments of defeating Lachish. But where did the king of Judah live? The capital city was Jerusalem. You would think that right there in his palace that it would be the, dis- the destruction of Jerusalem, right? Not Lachish. Like if someone, you know, wanted to artistically render their defeat of the United States, they wouldn't have like a portrait of the defeat of Jersey. You know what I mean? It would be Washington, D.C. But he has this thing of Lachish, and it's because he never beat Jerusalem. He got stopped short, and then he got killed right after. And it's still sitting over there in the desert, and you can you can see him on his throne. It says Sennacherib, king of kings. And it says the battle of Lachish. And it shows the seed ramps and all that. And it's like frozen in time in the desert. Um, and it's just one of the coolest stories because you have the Bible. Uh, you know, it was always proven accurate with archaeological records. But then you actually can go there and see the, the other side of the story. It's pretty cool, right? I think that's really cool. So you ought to, next time I put something on Facebook, you all should click on it and... Uh, <laughs> And watch it instead of uh, rolling your eyes or whatever it is you do. No. All right, that's it for tonight. Y'all have a good evening.